Well, typically we, for those of you that may be new here this morning or haven't been here in a while, we do teach verse by verse through the Bible. Uh, Bob Dewey is currently doing a wonderful job through 1 Corinthians. I'm going through the book of Matthew. But today we're going to be doing a topical message. And the reason we're going to do a topical message is because it is a holiday. Now, remember when I say holiday, what we really mean by that is a what we really mean is a holy day. Now, under the New Covenant in our Bibles, technically there are no holy days that we as Christians must celebrate, but we have the liberty to celebrate them. And so I want you to think about in a real sense, under the New Covenant, every day for believers in Jesus Christ is a holy day. Because through faith alone, in Christ alone, we are the people who have been made holy forever. And so that's why today our focus is going to be on the incarnation, because it is through the person and work of Christ that every person by faith can be made holy. Now, I want to begin today by asking the question, why was the incarnation necessary? And what I mean by incarnation, in the biblical parlance, what we mean by that is God becoming man. Why did he have to become man? Well, the incarnation was really necessary due to humanity's problem with sin. Notice my first bullet point here. We have, as humans, a sin debt that we cannot have if we're going to be in the presence of God. You see, what sin fundamentally creates is death. And death in the Bible is not annihilation, as um, I was talking to a great couple this morning that were mentioning that very thing. But rather, what death is in the Bible is separation. It's separation, first of all, physically, of body and soul at physical death but one day in eternal separation from God in the eternal lake of fire. In fact, notice the passage I listed, Psalm 5, 4 through 5. The Lord says that all those who have sinned can never dwell with him. And the problem is we've all sinned. And so there's an incompatibility. We cannot be in the presence as sinners with a holy and righteous God. Now, the second problem that we have is we must have a righteousness that we don't have. In fact, Jesus says in Matthew five twenty that unless you're righteousness would exceed that of the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of God. And so what I want you to think about is in these two bullet points, what we have is what I like to refer to as the great transaction. The great transaction, number one, is something that we must get rid of, namely our sin debt. We can't have that. But then at the same time, we must be given something that we don't have, a righteousness that is foreign to us from Christ. That's precisely why God had to become man. As you're going to see, the sending of the Son of God in the incarnation is designed to remove our sins and to impute, by the way, that means credit, righteousness to our accounts. Now, as we begin today in our message in John 1, 14 through 18, I want to mention that this passage is not about what we do for God. It's not about works. So take a vacation or a holiday from the idea that you have to do something. This passage is about the person of Jesus Christ because it is through his person, again, in his work that you can be given the great transaction and everlasting life. And so let's look at this rich theological passage. John 1.14, the apostle John wrote this. He said, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, dear ones, I want to pull up my pointer here. I want you to notice in the very opening phrase when it says, and the word became flesh, the term word in our New American Standard Bible on the screen is rightly capitalized. 
because they're showing you that this is a reference to the second person of the Trinity, the Son. And we know that because in John 1, 1, the Gospel of John opens up with the phrase, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so what we have here is a reference to the second person of the Trinity. He was with the Father, but he is distinct from the Father, and he is truly God. And so the Bible clearly reveals that there is one God revealed in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And by the way, for the skeptics that are out there, this is not a contradiction. The Bible does not teach we have one God and three gods at the same time and in the same relationship. That would be a contradiction. No, the Bible says it's one God revealed in three persons. Think of the analogy. We have one government that has three branches, the executive, the legislative, and the judicial. Now, does that mean we have one government and three governments at the same time? No. That's the way it is with the Trinity. And so what John 1.14 is succinctly stating to us is that the second person of the Trinity, when it says he became flesh, it means he became a human. He became a man. Now, there are three things I want you to jot down if you're a note taker regarding the incarnation. The first point I want to make is that in the incarnation, we do not have a subtraction of deity from the Son of God, but rather we have an addition of humanity. So that the Son of God now has a human nature as well. Truly God, truly man in one person. And in the scriptures, he can act from either nature. Let me give an example that we're going to be coming to in our studies in the book of Matthew. In Matthew chapter 8, you remember Jesus is on the Sea of Galilee with his disciples. And that huge storm rises over the western hills and it threatens their lives. Well, of course, the disciples are very concerned about it, but Jesus, not so much. He's asleep in the back of the boat. Why is Jesus sleeping? Well, because he's really a man. He really gets tired. He probably really snores. But remember, as the disciples become concerned, at the next moment, he stands up and he says, peace be still. And he stills the storm, demonstrating that he is God. In Job 9.8, the question is, who alone can tread down the waves of the sea? It's God alone who can do that. And now the disciples in the boat are more scared of Jesus than they are of the storm because they realize afresh that this is God in their presence. Throughout the scriptures, Jesus can operate through either nature. Point number two, the son after his incarnation will always have these two natures truly God, or you might say fully God, and fully man simultaneously. And we must distinguish between the natures, but we can never separate them. They will always be part of the Messiah. In the, the, sometimes in theology, we call this the hypostatic union. So again, we distinguish between the human and the divine nature, but we never separate them. Third point that I want you to think about German theologians in the 1800s claim that Jesus, when he became, as the Son of God became man, that he divorced himself of his divine attributes. That is false and that is heresy. Where they got that from was a misreading of Philippians 2 7, where it talks about in the incarnation, Jesus emptied himself. What he emptied himself of, dear ones, was not his divine attributes but his divine prerogative. 
that even though he was God, he chose to suffer for our sake. Think about it this way. In Philippians 2, Jesus is said to have humbled himself. You and I, as his followers, are to humble ourselves. If you humble yourself and perhaps put your significant other ahead of your own or your, yourself, does that mean you've lost human attributes? No. Dear ones, the German theologians in the 1800s were wrong. Jesus did not divorce himself of divine attributes, but merely the divine prerogative. The whole point of the Son of Man coming was to suffer on our behalf. Now, notice here to this, John adds another important phrase. He says, and he dwelt among us. Now, the term dwelt there, skinoo, is the term for tabernacle. And so this is the same term that was used of God tabernacling with the Israelites in the wilderness in Exodus chapter 25. And I want you to think about the significance of that. What John is telling us is that the same God who tabernacled with the people in the wilderness is now the God who is among us. And I want you to think about it in a real sense. You and I as new covenant believers, we're on the final exodus. It's the last one because the Lord will be returning imminently. And so in a sense, God comes to us as we're in the wilderness, but he's going to bring us to the promised land. And the great promise in Revelation 21.3 is that one day in glory, after the resurrection, we will tabernacle with our God and the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem, they will be our stomping grounds. Oh, what a day that will be. But it begins here. It begins with Christ coming the first time. Notice it goes on to say that we saw his glory, the glory of the only begotten. The glory that's being referred to here is a reference to the glory that belongs to God alone. The glory of God reveals his splendor, his majesty, and his weightiness, or you might, you might call it his gravitas. And so here, clearly, Jesus has the same glory because what? He is God. He's the same God of the Old Testament. In fact, notice it says that he is the only begotten. Now, from that phrase begotten, some have falsely concluded that this means Jesus came into existence at a point in time. I mention this because if you have a Jehovah Witness who comes to your doorstep, they will take that phrase, only begotten, they'll say, aha, that means Jesus came into existence. That is not a good reading of what only begotten means. The phrase only begotten comes from the Greek term monogenes. And the best rendering it, if you're a note taker, is jot in one and only. It means he's the one and only from the Father. There's none like him. He is the unique one. How do we know that? Because of other usages of the same term in the New Testament. For example, in Luke 8.42, Jairus has a monogenes daughter, meaning a one and only, and he wants Jesus to heal her as she is dying. We see the same idea in Luke 9.39, where there is a one and only son, a monogenes, who needs to be healed. So the point of Jairus' daughter in using the monogenes is not that she came about in a point in time, but the idea is this desperation. This is his only daughter. The same thing in Luke 9.39, it's his only son. That's monogenes. This is God's only son. He is the only one who is truly God, and truly man, there is none like him, and there never will be. He is unique. And notice, it says that he is full of what? Grace and truth. Now, we would be here for hours if we unpack simply the idea of grace and truth. 
But what I want you to see in that is that that is the fullness of God's salvific plan. We need his grace and truth. And Jesus is full of it. He is full of grace and truth. And this is a direct allusion back to Moses' experience with God at Mount Sinai in Exodus 34, 6. I want you to think for a moment. Remember Moses asked God to reveal himself to him on Mount Sinai. And what's very interesting is we as humans think, well, the revelation of God on Mount Sinai must have been what Moses saw. But if you look at Exodus 34, 6, what fully reveals God to Moses is not what Moses saw, it's the words that he heard. We're always the people of the book and the word rather than the experience. What did God himself reveal in words to Moses? Listen, it says, then the Lord, that's Yahweh, passed by in front of him and proclaimed. This is the Lord teaching. Here's a message from the Lord. The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. Do you realize that abounding means full? Exactly what this means in John 1.14. Do we realize that loving kindness is cassette? It's identical to grace. And so the God of the Old Testament, as he revealed himself with words to Moses, is the God who is full of grace and truth. Who is Jesus? He's the God who is full of grace and truth. Everything that you need for salvation is to be found in him. That's who this Jesus is. That's who we're celebrating today in the incarnation. As we proceed now in verses 15 through 16, we see more evidence of Jesus' divinity and of his magnificent grace. Notice it says that John testified, this would be John the Baptist, John the Baptist testified about him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received in grace upon grace. Now, let me just make a distinction. John the Apostle is the author of our gospel and our Bible, and he is citing how John the Baptist, the last prophet of the Old Testament, really, was prophesying of Christ. Remember, in the Old Testament, it prophesied that a prophet like Elijah, according to Malachi 4.5, according to Isaiah 40, verse 3, that he would come on the scene just prior to the Messiah to make his path straight. And so that's exactly who John the Baptist is. He is this Elijah-like prophet who comes at the first advent. By the way, there will be an Elijah-like prophet who comes at the second advent. But listen to the testimony of John the Baptist, this prophet who was prophesied to come. He said, this was he, that's the Messiah, of whom I said, he who comes after me has a higher rank than I. Now stop there for just a moment. Notice when he says, he who comes after me, John the Baptist knew that Jesus' ministry was going to come after him, and Jesus technically was born after him. So he knew that Jesus was younger, but notice he says, for he existed before me. That's why he has a higher rank. And so what John the Baptist is affirming is that this Jesus of Nazareth, as the Son of God, he's the eternal one. In, when we look at our creation today, we as Christians must know that there is only one eternal being, and that's God. Meaning that he never had a beginning 
and he will never have an end. So, for example, when we talk about eternal life, we really do have that, but I prefer the term everlasting because technically we came into existence at a point in time, but the moment you trust in Jesus Christ, you will be having life without end. But only God is without beginning and without end. Everything else in the entire cosmos had a beginning, whether it's the sun, the stars, the moon, the green things that you see upon the... We haven't seen a lot of green things lately. They ever come back again. The animals. Everything else is non-eternal. God alone is eternal. And so he's declaring that Jesus is God. And notice it says, for of his fullness, this is the fullness of Christ, we have all received and grace upon grace. Now, this is very exciting. Notice when it says, for all of his fullness, we have all received... This means we have received all that we need for salvation. And notice the and here. I would render this probably uh, something like namely. It's the sense of use of Kai. So I would render it for his fullness. We have all received namely grace upon grace. Now, what does grace upon grace mean? Many scholars have claimed that that means in the sending of the son, God has heaped one grace upon another upon us. It is a heaping of grace. And that very well may be the case. But I think a better rendering of this phrase is the preposition upon here. If it was really upon, the preposition that would be used would be epi in the Greek. But the term that's used is anti. So I would render it grace instead of grace. That's how I would render it. Now, what does it mean grace instead of grace? I think the point that John is making, as you will see when we get into the very next verse is that the graciousness that's found in Christ supplanted the graciousness that God had once provided in the law of Moses. Do you realize that the Apostle Paul himself in Romans 7 says that the law was holy, righteous, and good? And if you think biblically, it was a gracious provision by God. The problem with it is it can't save. Saving grace is found in Christ alone. And so as we proceed then, In the final two verses here, verses 17 through 18, notice the explanatory for. He says, for the law was given through Moses and grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Now, isn't it interesting? This explanatory for comes right after the grace instead of grace. And he says, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth are what? They're in Christ Jesus, in Jesus Christ. Now, the big point that I want you to see here is, remember, for the Jew, they thought the law as coming from Moses. But here John says, no, it is ultimately from God through Moses. But the biggest problem the Jews had is they thought that the law was an end in and of itself for being holy. What we're seeing here is that if you want grace and truth, again, all that is required to be saved, it's found where? Jesus Christ. That's what the law pointed to. If you've come to faith in Jesus Christ, you fulfilled the law. If you come to faith in Jesus Christ, you have found all that is required for your salvation. You have found the fullest expression of God's salvific purposes, all in Jesus Christ. I think that that's John's point. 
Now, notice in verse 18, he says something very interesting. He says, no one has seen God at any time. When we think about that, we know that Moses saw God. He saw him on Mount Sinai. But what we like to think of as theologians is that Moses only saw the caboose of his glory. It was just a little bit of his glory. In fact, God says to him in Exodus 33, 20, that no one can see God as he is and lives. No one can see him in his essence. Think about Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah just sees literally in the Hebrew, the shul, the hem of his glory. And he is ruined. He is ruined. And this is a prophet. How, How much less are we going to fare? So no one can see God as he truly is. And so every time someone sees God in a theophany in the Old Testament, it is a mediated form so that they can survive. The sending of the Son of God is in a mediated form so that you and I can survive. Think of this analogy. Some years ago, I heard a message given by Pastor Tom Brock, who formerly was a pastor at Hope Lutheran. Now he has a wonderful ministry where he does podcasts. But he told this story, and I like it. I'm going to borrow from it. He told a story of a family that was going to Christmas on Christmas Eve on a cold winter night to celebrate. But the father decided to stay home because he didn't believe. And as a rational thinking man, he couldn't understand any reason why there would be a need for an incarnation. It made no sense to him. And so the family went and he stayed home. Well, as he was home, he noticed a little bird that had broken its wing because it tried to fly through the windows as they often do. Well, he was concerned about the bird freezing to death. And so he opened the door, he went out on his deck and he's trying to get it in the house. But the bird is terrified of him. Why? Well, because that's a bird and he's a human. And so the man thought to himself, he goes, boy, I just can't get it in. He goes, I wish I was a bird. I could kind of coax it in. And then right away it dawned on him. That's the reason for the incarnation. That God became man to be one who could reveal the fullness of God to us. And so that's why when we go on to see that he's in the bosom of the Father, which means intimacy, it goes on to say from there, not only does he have this intimacy, but this Christ who became man for us, he has explained him. The term explained literally means to exegete. Let me explain a little bit of theology for you. When we talk about eisegesis, versus exegesis, what we mean by eisegesis is something we don't want to do if you're a thoughtful Christian, is you don't want to read into the text what it is not saying. Exegesis is what we want to do. We want to pull out what is truly there. Jesus is the one who exegeted who God is, showing us truly who he is. Why? Well, because he's God. In fact, In the Gospels and in the New Testament, Jesus is depicted, when the term exegesis is used, as narrating who God is fully. If you've been with Christ in man form, you've been with God. And so Jesus in his ministry is the one who preaches the gospel. He is the preacher par excellence. He is the one who preaches the good news to the poor. He is the one who heals those who are deaf so their ears are open to hear. He is the one who gives the lame the ability to walk and the mute the ability to speak and the blind the ability to see. And so he has power over illness. He has power also over the demonic realm. Why? He casts the demons out. 
And then he shows that he has power over all of creation, fulfilling Job 9.8. He alone treads down the waves of the sea. He walks on the water. He calms the storms. And then he shows he has mastery over life and death. He raises the dead. And then he overcomes sin, death, and hell on the cross. And then he himself overcomes the grave on the third day. Jesus himself says, no one takes my life. I lay it down and I have the authority to take it up again. Why? Because he's God. And then he ascends into the heavens. He's seated at the right hand of God. Or he fulfills Psalm 110.1. Why? Because he is the God-man who fully explains and exegetes who God is and what he requires. You know, the whole point of all of what John writes is found in the later chapter, John 20, verse 31, where John says this, He says, but these things I have written so that you may believe in Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you may have life in his name. The whole purpose of the incarnation is that we would have life through faith in him. Now, let's come to some application points. I have two of them for you this morning. Number one, the Messiah had to be both God and man to save us. Now, why is that? Well, first of all, salvation is only of God. Salvation does, never comes from man. It's only of God. So the Messiah had to be God if he's to be your Savior. Number two, or B, we needed a new representative. Our first representative, Adam, brought us sin and death. We need a new representative who will bring us righteousness in life. That's why he had to be truly God and truly man. Number two, everyone should believe in Jesus because of predictive prophecy. The Bible doesn't ask us to believe in myths or fairy tales. It asks us to believe based on evidence. There is no other religious writing on the planet that has predictive prophecy as the Bible does. There's none like it. Someone will always mention, by the way, Nostradamus. Nostradamus wasn't right about anything. You have to actually distort what he writes, change it into another language to make it fit. You don't have to do that with the Bible. We'll show you that. So let's begin with number one. At Christmas, we are rightly celebrating again God becoming man. But let's ask ourselves another question. Why did the Messiah have to be God? Well, he had to be God because, again, salvation can only come from God since the Bible clearly reveals that you and I as human beings are so dead in our transgressions that we could never save ourselves. So salvation, therefore, is only possible by God. And we see this, for example, in Isaiah 43, 11. Notice it says here, I, even I, am the Lord, and there is no Savior besides me. Now, let me pull up my pointer. Notice the term Lord. That's the covenant name for God. That's Yahweh, when you see all caps. Remember, Yahweh comes from a yiktol verb, I will be who I will be, or I am who I am. And what is being accentuated in that name, Yahweh, is God's eternality. That's how God revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush. Remember, Moses says, who should I say that sent me to the Israelites? He says, tell them, I am sent you. Now, why is that important? Because Jesus links himself to being Yahweh. In John 8, 58, he says, before Abraham was, I am. He's calling himself Yahweh. And notice the testimony, there's no Savior besides me. There's no other Savior It's not any man, it's not any machine, it's not any animal, it's not a storm, it's not anything in the cosmos. There's one Savior, and it's the Holy One of Israel. It's Yahweh. And that's who Jesus is. 
That's the testimony of Scripture. Now, throughout the Scriptures, we see clear affirmation that Jesus is the Savior and that he's God. One of my favorites is found in Titus 2.13. Titus 2.13 here is about us as Christians longing for the second coming of Christ bodily. Titus 2.13, Paul says that we are looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Dear ones, I want to focus on what you see in blue in this phrase down here, God and Savior, Christ Jesus. In the late 1700s into the 1800s, there was a man named Granville Sharp. He grew up in England, and he was an abolitionist. He hated slavery, rightly so. Well, Granville lived up to his name. He was Sharp. He self-taught himself both Hebrew and Greek, not only to become a better Christian and to understand the Scriptures better, but that he would be a better apologist and a better defender of the slaves who needed to be free. This man was brilliant. He came up with a grammatical construction that I like to summarize as an acronym, ASKS. And he came up with this, by the way, before computers. So this man was crunching this out all by hand. And the, the formula that he came up with, he said, anytime in Greek you have an article, substantive, chi, substantive, hence ASKS, construction, the two substantives, which are nouns, are the same person. And it happens, and there's some other rules associated with it, but I have to assure you that that's the exact construction here. And why is that important to you on December 25th, 2022? The reason it's relevant to you is because what that says of Titus 2.13 is that this is not a reference merely to God the Father and Savior the Son, but rather both God and Savior must be the same person, namely Christ Jesus. This is God. Salvation is only of God. That's why he had to come. Dear ones, it took God on the cross of infinite worth to pay off an infinite debt. We have, as humans can never bring salvation. Salvation could only come from God. The Messiah had to be God. Now, why did the Son of Man have to be a man? Why did he not just be God and be done with it? Well, he had to be our new representative. The Bible is very clear that our first representative, Adam, brought us sin and death. And so we needed a new representative to bring us righteousness. Now, let me teach you a little bit about the doctrine of something called imputation. The term imputation means to be credited. And God works by way of imputation. Let me show you where he clearly does. In other words, what Adam did was credited to our account. But what Jesus did can also be credited to our account. The Apostle Paul clearly teaches this in Romans 5.19. Notice he begins, he says, for as through the one man, by the way, who's the one man he's referring to? He's referring to Adam. Through the one man's disobedience, the many, that really is all, were made sinners. He uses the many to make it stand with the many here. But the idea is that he made all to be sinners. Every single person is born a sinner because Adam's sin is credited to our account. And as I say that, I know some may be sitting here, maybe you're watching, and you're thinking, well, that's not fair. Why would Adam's sin be credited to my account? Well, praise be to God that God works by the way of imputation. Because when we ask the question, have you actually sinned in your own life? Have you actualized the sin nature and sinned on your own? The answer is yes. Therefore, you're guilty 
before God. And if God did not work by way of imputation, the second part of this could not be true. This is the good news of the gospel. It says, even so, through the obedience of the one, that's Jesus, the many, that would be only for believers, will be made righteous. Why? Because his righteousness can be credited to our account. This is why Jesus, as the man, had to be sinless. If he had sin of his own, he would have to pay his own debt forevermore in the lake of fire. But because he is sinless, he can go to a cross as a substitute and take upon himself the full measure of wrath that we deserve to be punished with, and he can pay it off. And that's why it says in Hebrews 4.15, regarding Christ as our high priest, it says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Because he was sinless, he could pay our debt on the cross. Truly God, in one man, truly God, because salvation is only of God, and truly man, because he had to be our new representative. That's what you and I are celebrating today in the incarnation. Praise be to God that he would send his only son. Okay, now let's come to the final point, and that is this morning, it is irrational, I would claim, for anyone not to believe in Jesus Christ. The things that Jesus Christ happened, not in story form, they happened in history. All the places that you read about in the Bible, they actually exist. When you look at the Book of Mormon, the Book of Mormon has all sorts of things that don't exist in time, space, and history. They simply don't exist. It's a fairy tale. But the Bible doesn't ask us to believe in fairy tales. It asks us to believe in the truth of the gospel. And we know that the gospel is true based on predictive prophecy. See, some of these prophecies about the coming of the Messiah are hundreds of years in advance. Let me give you one example, Micah 5.2. Micah 5.2 predicted 740 years prior to Christ's birth that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Ironically, Bethlehem means house of bread. Jesus, the bread of life, was to be born in the house of bread. Remember Herod the Great, when he wanted to murder the Messiah, he asked his scholars, where is the Messiah to be born? They said, Bethlehem. Where did they get that crazy idea? Micah 5.2, written 740 years in advance. But I want to show you that that's not the only prophecy. There's over 333 historically verifiable prophecies that are fulfilled in great detail in the first advent of Christ alone. There are others that will be fulfilled in the second advent. But let's look at a famous prophecy written 730 years in advance. Now, before I read this, let me set the stage for this prophecy. If you don't know the, what's going on, you'll be at a loss. What's going on with Isaiah 7.14 is the prophet Isaiah goes out to meet the king of Judah, Ahaz. Ahaz, the king of Judah, has a big concern. His concern is he is being threatened by northern neighbors, Samaria and Syria. Not Assyria, but Syria. And so Ahaz, as a Davidic king who has the promises, remember the messianic promises were given to David, 2 Samuel 7. He's a Davidic king. And he can stand in the promises of God. He has a real choice. Am I going to choose to trust God for protection or will I choose an alliance with Assyria? Assyria was the dominant world power of the day. It'd be like the United States in the 1980s, a dominant world power. Are you going to choose to trust in God or are you going to trust in man? 
Well, Ahaz, being the unbeliever, chooses to trust in man. And Isaiah knows it. Isaiah comes, he says, hey, the Lord is saying you can ask of any sign you want. And all of a sudden, Ahaz catches religion. He says, no, I'm not going to put the Lord God to a test. I'm not going to ask for a sign. He's feigning piety. Because in truth, he's already made a deal with Assyria. He has no intention of trusting in God. And so you know what Isaiah says to him? He says, you're going to get a sign anyway. He says, therefore, the Lord himself. That phrase, an adjectival intensive, it's... The Lord himself has nothing to do with you, Ahaz, or anyone else. The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. Now, very important to understanding this prophecy is notice the you. Does everyone see that under the little marker there? The you there is not singular. It's second person plural. And you might be thinking, well, why in the world does that matter? It's a big deal. Because if this was second person plural, singular, that would mean that this sign was given to Ahaz alone. And therefore, the virgin birth would happen, would have to happen in Ahaz's day. But the you plural means that this sign is given not to Ahaz, but the entire Davidic kingdom. And so therefore, it doesn't matter when it's fulfilled. It can happen hundreds of years later because it's given as a sign that even though the entire Davidic line of kings have been unfaithful, God is still faithful to his promises. And that's what this sign will denote. And so what will happen? Well, a virgin is going to give birth to a child. Now, there's a lot of ink spilled about the term virgin. The term that's used there, Oma. Many scholars for many years said, well, that's the last term you would use. You would use the term Betula, which always means virgin. Well, I've refuted that. I did that last year where I showed that when you look at the linguistics in the way that Betula and Alma are used, the term that you would want to use for this situation for Mary is Alma. Why? The term that critical scholars say always means virgin Betula, it does mean virgin, but it means a virgin of any age. It could be an 80-year-old virgin. It can be a 15-year-old. But the term Alma that's used here not only means virgin, in particular, it means a young virgin. Who is Mary who gives birth to Christ? She's not just a virgin. She's a young one. And she gives birth through a virgin supernatural. We're claiming this is odd. This is not normal. She gives birth to a son who is God with us, Emmanuel. That's what's being taught in 730 years after that prophecy. Precisely a young virgin gave birth to a son who claimed to be God and proved it through all of his miraculous works. Now, this prophecy continues. It's not done here. It continues on into Isaiah 9. In fact, it goes all the way through Isaiah 11. Notice in Isaiah 9, 6, more talk here about Emmanuel, the son that will be born. Notice Isaiah, 730 years in advance, continues. He says, for a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Notice, dear ones, the person who's going to be born is truly a son. He's really a human being. But he's also called El Gabor. He's Mighty God. 
730 years in advance, Isaiah is teaching messianic doctrine in his day that this Messiah who will be born to a virgin is going to be truly God and truly man. Well, isn't that interesting? That's exactly what we read about today in John 1, 14 through 18. Written 730 years in advance. Not mere haphazard predictions of who the Messiah would be. Messianic doctrine. That's how wonderful the predictions are in the scriptures. What other writing is like this? Do the Hindus have it in their Vedas? Do the Muslims have it in their Quran? No. They don't have anything like it. And we could go on and on and on through the predictive prophecies. We'd be here until next Christmas. But let's keep going just through this text about the Emmanuel son. It continues in Isaiah 11. Notice Isaiah 11.1. It says, Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. Now, let me just explain why the idea of a stem and a branch and this idea of a tree is being mentioned. I think you'll find this interesting. When you read the Bible, because the messianic promises were given to David in 2 Samuel 7, all of the Davidic kings were depicted like a mighty tree. A mighty tree. They were to stand forever. But because of the rebellion of the Davidic kings, whether, whether it was Jehoiakim or Zedekiah or Ahaz before, it was chopped down. And all seemed to be lost. But what God is predicting in Isaiah 11 through the prophet is that he's going to start over with the Messiah. And he's going to resurrect. Even though the, the tree's been chopped down, he's going to bring a little stem up. This stem is the Messiah. And he's what all the Davidic kings should have been. And so notice it says he's going to be a shoot of Jesse. What's Jesse? That sounds funny. By the way, this isn't Uncle Jesse from the Dukes of Hazard. You remember Crazy Cooter, get your ears on. No, it's not that. Jesse was the father of David. So this is a fancy way of saying a shoot of David. So the term shoot there, koter, means he is going to be a descendant of David. Now what's very interesting is this is found in Isaiah 11.1. 1. When you get down to Isaiah 11.10, we have something called an inclusio. Now, what is an inclusio? It's a section of literature that is bracketed by similar themes. By the way, you know, I was a flight instructor. I was an airline pilot. I was never intellectually challenged as much as I am when I study the Bible. The biblical writers, Bob showed us this last week in Luke, the chiasms that they use. The biblical writers are so much brighter than anybody that we have today. There's no one that can write like this. No one. I've read a lot of books. No one writes like these guys did. Let me show you. Here's an inclusio. Get to verse 10. Listen to this. It says, Then in that day the nations will resort to the root of Jesse, who will stand as a signal for the peoples, and his resting place will be glorious. This is about the second coming of the Messiah, as he rules and reigns upon the earth. That one day the swords will be beat into plowshares and the spears into pruning hooks and no longer will the nations learn more. That's what this whole thing is about. But notice it talks about now the root of Jesse. Remember, Jesse stands for David. So this is the root of David. The term for root here, Sheresh. By the way, I'm sorry, I think I said Sheresh up here. This is Koter for shoot. Now you have the root. And here's the question. Root means he is the one who originated David. David came from him. Well, how can you have in one Messiah someone who is the shoot who comes from David and someone who is the source of David? 
How can you have that? You have it in the God-man. That's what you have. 730 years in advance. The son that's to be born unto us who is mighty God. He is the descendant of David, but he is also the root of David. That's the precision of the scriptures written for us. So that you may believe. So that you can know that this isn't haphazard predictions, but messianic doctrine being taught in advance to prove all of Christ's claims. The predictive prophecies in the Bible prove that there's a God in heaven who knows the future, that the Bible uniquely is his word, and that Jesus Christ is exactly who he claimed to be. Today is the day to trust in him. Let me give the gospel in shorthand. The gospel is good news. That's what it means. But I always tell people the gospel, the good news, really only makes sense unless, I should say, if you know the bad news. The bad news is very bad indeed revealed in the scriptures that all of us have rebelled against God. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. By the way, that's unifying. I'm no better than you. You're no better than me. We're all sinners. All have rebelled against God. And the news gets worse. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. Not just temporary death, separation of body and soul, but one day eternal death separated from God in the lake of fire in hell. Jesus himself taught that. That's bad news. But it's precisely in light of the bad news that the good news shines. The good news is that God sent forth his son, the son who existed as God and with God from all eternity at a point in history, humbled himself and he became a man through the virgin birth. He did so so that he could live the perfect life that none of us could. So that by faith in him, his righteousness could be credited to my account, part of the great transaction. But Jesus didn't just live the perfect life. He died a substitutionary death. Jesus the just on behalf of us, the unjust, in order that we might be brought to God. That's the other part of the transaction. The proof that Jesus did this was seen by the fact that on the third day after his bodily death, he was bodily raised from the dead. The bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ proves all of his claims. When Jesus says that he is the way, the truth, and the life, that no one comes to the Father but by him, we can believe it because he was raised bodily from the dead. This Jesus has ascended into the heavens, seated at the right hand of God, which fulfills Psalm 110.1. From where he's coming again bodily in history to bring wrath and judgment upon his enemies, but to bring salvation, a resurrection, and a glorious kingdom for his people. What must we do? Well, Jesus doesn't give just a simple hint or a suggestion. He gives a command. The command in Mark 1.15 is to repent and to believe the gospel. Repentance has to do with a turning and a changing of our mind and a turning from idolatry to God on his terms. Perhaps there are some here who are Buddhists, or maybe you're listening, you're a Buddhist or you're an atheist. Maybe you're a Hindu or a Mormon. Mormons have a different Jesus. Their Jesus is the spirit brother of Lucifer. He's not the Jesus of the Bible. Maybe you're a Jehovah Witness. They don't have the true Jesus from the Bible. Their Jesus isn't God. Maybe you have that. Today is the day if you're an unbeliever. In any way, turn from those things, from that idolatry, and turn to God in his terms, which is faith alone in the Christ of the Bible alone. And by the authority of the scriptures, you can know that you have the forgiveness of sins and everlasting life, all because of the God-man. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for the truths that you reveal in Scripture, for the wonderful predictions that we may know that we may know, even in the darkest days, that your word is true, that Jesus Christ is who we claim to be. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for these great promises. We pray for our loved ones that don't know you today. We pray that today would be their day. Or soon, Lord, that you would regenerate their hearts, enable them to believe. We pray that you'd give us boldness to proclaim the gospel to our coworkers, our friends, our loved ones in the weeks and the months ahead of this new year. We pray, Heavenly Father, you would work on our behalf for those who don't know you so that they may be saved. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.